Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy. You know, one of the most bizarre phenomena of nature is the eye of a hurricane. The winds of a hurricane, they spin in a circular pattern up to 180 miles per hour. But at the center of the storm, the winds die down and this eerie calm exists. My wife is from South Florida. And she lived through several hurricanes. And she recalls how her dad would go out into the backyard and he'd pluck all the coconuts off the trees. And he would board up the house. They huddled together in the hallway as the storm unleashed its fury. But then when the eye passed overhead, Kathy's dad would open the doors and lead the family into the backyard so that they could experience the strange serenity. They had just braved a fierce storm and soon they would be right back in its teeth. But the eye of the hurricane provided a brief reprieve, a chance to lick their wounds and catch their breath. The eye was nature's intermission. Well, 1 Timothy was written in the eye of a hurricane. Paul had just experienced a frightening storm. And unbeknownst to him, he was headed right back into its teeth. But for the moment, there was a calm in his circumstances. Paul went to Rome to be tried before Caesar Nero. He'd stood in the lion's mouth and escaped. The emperor had set set him free, but his freedom was short-lived. For just two years later, in 65 AD, Paul was arrested again, this time for the last time. A year later, Paul was beheaded, martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. So at this moment, a fierce storm is behind him. A fiercer storm is ahead of him. And Paul is in the backyard enjoying the calm In the eye of the hurricane, he writes two letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. His second letter to Timothy is penned in that final fateful storm. Up until this point in your Bible, Paul's letters are to churches, but these next four are written to individuals. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were church leaders, pastors. Thus, we call these letters the pastoral epistles. They teach us the priorities of a church leader and how he should conduct the ministry of the church. We could call this section of the New Testament Lessons for Leaders. Well, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. The term apostle means ambassador. We talk about the apostolic office. We'll talk about that later. But the term refers to the man who has been sent out as a representative. And this colored all that Paul was and did and said. He was a representative of his Lord Jesus. He was always conscious of the fact that he represented. He stood for realities bigger than himself. He represented God and his Lord and the gospel and the church and God's grace. And here he writes to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Reminds me of Billy, the pastor's six-year-old son. At church, Billy would always introduce himself as Billy Allen, Pastor Allen's son. Well, one night his mom suggested that he drop the Pastor Allen's son, you know, be his own man. 
introduce himself as just Billy Allen. Well, the next Sunday, a visitor came to church and asked Billy his name. Following his mom's advice, he replied, I'm Billy Allen. The man replied, oh, Billy Allen, you must be Pastor Allen's son. Billy answered, well, dad says so, but my mom isn't so sure. (laughs) Well, unlike Pastor Allen's wife, Paul had no qualms about advertising the father-son relationship that he had with Timothy. According to Acts chapter 16, Timothy's natural father was not a believer in Jesus. And though his mother Eunice and his grandma Lois were Christians, and godly examples no doubt, a mom's influence only goes so far. Here's a startling statistic. When a father is an active believer, 75% of the time his kids become active believers. But when mom is the only active believer in the family, the odds decrease to 15%. The father factor is crucial in a son or daughter's spiritual formation. If you're a dad, dad, you have an important task. You help to shape the spiritual well-being of your children. This is why Eunice jumped for joy when Paul took her son under his wing. Paul was a spiritual dad to young Timothy. And Timothy, in turn, became Paul's faithful friend and troubleshooter. He'll put out fires in Corinth and in Philippi and in Thessalonica and in Ephesus. Timothy became a capable pastor under Paul's mentorship. Paul greets Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. That's interesting. When Paul writes to churches, he always greets them with grace and peace. But whenever he writes to pastors, he adds mercy. (laughs) And I can tell you firsthand, I know why. A pastor's job is harder. His responsibilities are greater. And hey, his judgment will be stricter. That means he really needs mercy. Well, in Acts chapter 19, Paul started the church in Ephesus. And it was a strong, healthy church. When Paul moved on, though, he turned its leadership over to Timothy. And here he writes to his protege, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Boy, needless to say, Timothy has some big shoes to fill. Pastoring in the wake of Paul. I mean, that would be like taking over after Bear Bryant and coaching Alabama or filling in for Billy Graham. And you'll notice in this letter that Timothy was a bit timid. That's why Paul has to urge him here. Urge, I urge you to remain in Ephesus. Stick with it, Timothy. Stay at it. Timothy needed a holy nudge. Throughout this letter, Paul will follow a familiar pattern. He will urge Timothy... And then he will praise God. He will urge and then he will praise. He challenges Timothy to press on by getting Timothy to look up. This is one of the best motivations for you and I to stick with it and to hang on and to stay at it. That's when we look up and see the great God that we serve and to whom we're going. And the first thing Paul urges Timothy to do is to remain. As a pastor of the same church for 32 years now, to my surprise, longevity has brought with it some tremendous rewards. 
In fact, I think in almost every venue of life, longevity is an underrated virtue. Whether it's a job or a marriage or a community or a church, I think you'll find some of the very best blessings come only through longevity. They accrue, the blessings accrue when you remain. In verse 3, Paul also urges Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Apparently, falsehoods and speculations were seeping into this church. And Timothy's told to resist them both. And this is still the central job of any pastor. You see, falsehoods deny the truth of Scripture. Speculation may not deny the Bible, but they just distract us from its emphasis. They take folks down irrelevant rabbit trails. Bible codes and 666 interpretations and UFOs and conspiracy theories are all clever speculation. But they don't really promote godly living or biblical knowledge. And here Paul is telling Timothy to never let tabloid overshadow truth. Our focus should be on the scriptures. For verse 5 tells us it's in result. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. You see, Christian truth produces a love for God and a love for people. Not arrogance, not fear, not elitism, not combativeness, but love. I think you can divide teachers into two categories. Some Bible teachers, you hear them and and, and you want to go out and fight somebody. Other Bible teachers, you hear them and you want to go out and love somebody. I want to be the latter. That's why every insight or every preaching point, if it doesn't increase my love for God and my love for you, it doesn't deserve a lot of my attention. It might be intellectually stimulating as some speculation can be, or it might pique my curiosity. But if it doesn't encourage me to love God from a pure heart, and from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, then it doesn't really merit my focus. But verse 6, From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they affirm. Now, there were legalists in Ephesus. And rather than preach God's grace, preach God's love, they were forcing the believers to jump through various legalistic hoops. They had all kinds of rules and rituals and requirements that went far beyond the gospel's demand for simple faith. Ever heard of hula hoops? Remember the hula hoops? Beware of holy hoops. Oh, that you got to be baptized in a certain way. Or by an exact formula. Or you have to worship on a specific day of the week. Or you have to speak in tongues. Or you have to read from a specific Bible version. Or vote for a particular political party. Or educate your kids the way that we do over here at our church. Or that you have to eat or drink our way. Do this, avoid that. Or if you don't, you're a second-class Christian. You see, the legalist says, follow our stipulations, or you'll never know God's best for your life. 
That's just not true. Faith is not about towing a line. Faith is about following Jesus. Remember the purpose of the commandment is love. You know, this was true of the Old Testament commandments. It was true of the Old Testament stories and codes of conduct and rituals. They were all about love. We forget that sometimes. The law taught us that God loves us enough to provide us a sacrifice. Even the genealogies reveal a God who cares enough about his people to call each one by name. The law God gave to Moses was all about how we could love God and how we should love one another. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Did you know it's possible to use the Bible in an unbiblical way? Did you know that? That you can use God's law unlawfully? Once there was a man, he'd fallen on hard times, he turned to the Bible, closed his eyes and just pointed down at the page. It read, olive oil. He took it as a sign from God. He invested in Texas oil wells. And he earned millions. But soon the wells all dried up. And so once more he turned to the Bible. Closed his eyes, plopped his finger down on the page, and it read, Paul was placed in the stocks. Oh, that's a sign from God. He invested in the stock market. Once again became a millionaire. But soon, after the market had taken a dramatic nosedive and cost him his fortune, he again turned to the Bible. This time his put his finger down on the page and he looked down at his fingertip and there right under it were the words chapter 11. Hopefully that last sign caused him to realize that Bible roulette is not a really great way of finding out God's will. Hey, if you twist it enough, if you cut and paste enough, a person can make the Bible say whatever he wants. That's why we need to interpret the Bible in its context. We need to use the law lawfully. This is why in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy to be diligent as you study the Bible so that you can rightly divide the word of truth. Well, Paul comments on the correct use of the law in verse 9. He says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. You see, the person with rebellion in his heart is the one who needs boundaries for his hands. You need do's and don'ts if you lack the proper wants. But a Christian who's been made new through Christ... A person who's a new creation, who has new desires and new wants and new passions. Rather than be bound by the law, a believer in Jesus needs to be released in order to love and follow the Holy Spirit. Remember the law is like an x-ray. It shows you the break in the bone, but it doesn't fix it. By the way, that's somebody that got ran over in a bull race. The x-ray shows the break. It shows the break, but it can't remedy it. It can't repair the damage. No, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We gain God's favor and His forgiveness and His fortitude by faith and by faith alone, not by the works of the law. 
Why live with the law looking over my shoulder when the Holy Spirit now fills my heart? I need to be following the Holy Spirit, not the law. People live far more godly lives when they're bathed in God's grace than when they're flogged by the law. Paul says that the law is not for the righteous, but for the murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and for manslayers. These are people who obviously lack love. The law is for fornicators and for sodomites. It's not love to use a person for sexual gratification with no regard to what's morally and spiritually best for them. The long arm of the law is for kidnappers. Love doesn't steal another person's freedom and force them to comply against their will. And it's for liars and perjurers. Love doesn't deceive or distort the truth. Laws are necessary for people who lack love. He says, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now here's a definition for sound doctrine, according to this verse. It's God's love in action. That's sound doctrine. The gospel produces this kind of love. This is why the law no longer applies to the Christian. But where there is no gospel, then there's no love. The selfless or selfish, loveless people, they have to be restrained by law. And notice Paul mentions the glorious gospel. I'm sure when he did, it brought a tear or two to his eyes. You know, he shares a bit of his testimony now with Timothy. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. Putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor, and an insolent man, or literally a bully, a hothead, a bully. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Notice those words, I was formerly. What if you were writing a letter, and you used those same words, I was formerly. Blank. How would you fill in the blank? I was formerly a druggie, an adulterer, a hothead, a pervert, a hypocrite. There's a line in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is told, you must know that forgetful green is the most dangerous place in these parts, Christian. Forgetful green. Boy, that's that grassy bluff where you relax and you forget who you were and what you escaped and what you would be apart from Christ. It's the place where you get bluffed. Hey, don't forget who you were before you came to know Christ. Don't forget how far He's brought you. Don't forget the glorious gospel that set you free. And Paul doesn't. Verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul remembered who he was apart from Christ. In his former life, Paul hated Christ and killed Christians. And now he says, however, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You see, with Paul, God set a marvelous precedent. 
he, he found the meanest, vilest sinner on the block. And he cut him down to size. It happened on the Damascus off-ramp. Jesus knocked Paul off his high horse with a bright light. Jesus reached as low as he could go. He turned the chief of sinners to himself. Why? To prove that he can turn anyone. After Paul, there's now hope for us all. And Paul erupts in praise. Praise to God in verse 17. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Why remain at your post? Why represent God well? Because the king is worthy. He is timeless. He is incorruptible. He is intangible. He is wise and wonderful. Again, notice the pattern in Paul's letter. Here's Timothy's duty. Now here's God's glory. God's honor is the reason Timothy should conduct his ministry honorably. Thus, now in verse 18, he gives him a new challenge. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now notice Timothy's ministry is couched in military terminology. This word translated charge, it speaks of a military assignment, orders from headquarters. We need to never forget that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. We learn from these letters that Timothy, again, is a bit timid. He's a timid soul. He loved Jesus, but whenever he met resistance, he, he tended to shrink back rather than rise up. He tended to cower rather than power. And here Paul supplies him a needed reminder. Apparently, when God did call Timothy originally to ministry, he gave to Timothy a few personal predictive promises. You know, promises from God are powerful. If you've ever gotten a promise from God, I hope you've held on to it. Because promises are powerful. Promises from God cast vision for our lives. They establish direction and course for our lives. They become anchors in the storms of life. They become reflectors down the dark road. They become guideposts at the fork in the road. They fan the fire when you start to run out of steam. Promises of God are powerful. And here's my question tonight. What personal promises has God made to you? We need to do as Paul encourages Timothy. Don't shrink or shirk from these promises. Don't conveniently forget them. Recall them. Embrace them. Rise up in faith and use those old promises as new motivation to keep up the fight. To continue holding fast and following the orders that you've received. Well, Timothy, he needs to hold fast. Verse 19 says... For having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now all wars have casualties, including the spiritual battle. And here Paul mentions two men who suffered shipwreck. Hymenaeus and Alexander had denied the faith. 
And as a result, they had gotten the right foot of Christian disfellowship. They were booted from the body of Christ. You know, the fastest way to learn to appreciate what you've been given is to be forced to live without it. And that's why discipline has to occur in the church from time to time. In our last, in the 32 years that I've been a pastor, we've only had to remove a few people from our fellowship here on a very few occasions. But when it was done, it was necessary. And it was certainly done biblically. 1 Timothy is going to talk a lot about church membership. It's going to talk about its safeguards, its privileges, its obligations. And at times, like here, the safeguards and the privileges have to be removed in order to remind the person of the obligations. Church discipline is often necessary. Tough love has a place in church life. Well, now chapter 2 begins. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. It's our job to pray. But for whom should we pray? Well, Paul tells us, all men. And this has some incredible implications. It means, first of all, that no human being on earth is outside the influence of our prayers. For God wouldn't have told us to pray for all men if there were some men for whom our prayers had no effect. This is why it's wrong to write anyone off. No one is beyond the reach of our prayers. And notice the four types of prayer mentioned in this verse. Supplication. Supplication is a felt need. It's an open wound. It's a spontaneous cry of the heart, you know, to, to bring healing, for the healer to come and bring healing to the person's life. The next word translated prayers speaks of reverence for God. This is more of a deliberate posturing before God. Part of prayer is humbling ourselves before Him. It's maintaining that humble heart, that dependent attitude. Intercession, of course, is the request on behalf of someone else. And then fourthly, the giving of thanks. I mean, should we ever approach God apart from a grateful heart? Our prayer should always consist of, of all four of these ingredients. Cries of the heart. Needs that we take to God. Praise for God and a humility before God. Help for others should always be a part of our prayers. And then, of course, we should always pray with a grateful heart. Thankful for what God has done for us. Paul says, pray for all men, and especially kings and all who are in authority. Now realize, as Paul raises his pen to write these words, the most evil tyrant the world has ever seen sits on the throne in Rome. Who was the king? Emperor Nero. And Nero was kissing cousins with Adolf Hitler. He made Sodom Hussein. Looked like a babysitter. Nero was a certifiable nut. But apparently a nut that couldn't be cracked. At least through prayer. If the church chose to pray, God could even change the heart of the emperor himself. You know, biblically speaking, you and I can disagree with President Obama. But not before we pray for him. And how should we pray for our authorities? Verse 2 outlines the church's political agenda. Do you know what the church needs to be concerned about politically? Here it is. Here's what we should expect from our government. 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We just need to pray that they stay off our back and out of our way. That's what we should expect. Realize a government that allows you the right to vote and enacts moral laws and even laws that reflect Christian values and affords tax breaks for you. I mean, this is all icing on the cake. Paul's expectations of government are far more modest. He says, just be thankful when the government stays off your back. If you can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, then be thankful for it. Be thankful if you can live and worship without government interference. This is what we're to pray for. I think it's always helpful to to remind ourselves that the goal of the church and society isn't the Christianization of institutions, but the evangelization of individuals. We need to pray that government stays out of our way and lets us share our faith freely. Verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God. Of the truth. Notice this, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Some people think that God's salvation targets a select few. That idea is foreign to the New Testament. Don't get God and the Marines mixed up. It's the Marines who want a few good men. God desires for all men to be saved. And he's appointed a middleman to broker our salvation. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You remember in the midst of his suffering, Job felt the huge chasm that separated him from God. In fact, in Job chapter 9 verse 33, Job cried out, Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job needed help in reaching God. This is a universal realization. Everyone knows deep inside that they can't reach out to a holy God on their own. This is why people carry rabbit's foot in their pocket. And why they consult mediums. And why they wear crystals. And why they pray the rosary. And why they hail Mary. They're just reiterating the cry of Job. They're looking for a mediator, some go-between, someone who can bridge the gap between God's love and their lostness. They know they can't do it themselves. They need help. It reminds me of Ernie. When the hospital attendant wheeled him back from the surgery, she inadvertently forgot to place the call button within his reach. As he started to shake off the anesthesia, Ernie's pain became excruciating, but he couldn't reach the call button. And he couldn't walk over and get out of bed and walk over and get it. And so he found a mediator. He was a quick thinker. Ernie dug around and he found his cell phone and he called the hospital switchboard. And the operator connected him to the nurse's station on his floor and immediately help arrived. Well, if you want God's forgiveness and God's healing, if you want some help, if you want to know how to to communicate with God and receive help from God, then you need someone closer to God than you are. You need someone that you can go to and can solicit His help in obtaining God's help for you. And neither the Buddha, nor Muhammad, nor Moses, nor Mary, nor the saints, not even Oprah can help you. 
There is one mediator between God and man, and only one. And Paul says he is the man, Christ Jesus. And here's why Jesus Christ can broker salvation. Because, Paul tells us, he gave himself a ransom for all. He came as a man to die in the place of all men. You see, Jesus died not as a criminal or as a victim or as a political pawn, but as a ransom. His sinless blood was the price required for our sinful lives. The man Christ Jesus is the ransom that God paid for all the sins of all mankind so that we all could be bought back and come to know God. You know, one of the five points of Calvinism is the doctrine of limited atonement, that Jesus died for a select few. But Paul tells us here that he gave himself a ransom for all. Sadly, in the end, not everyone will be saved. But if you're not, you won't be able to blame God. Verse 4 tells us that God desires for all men to be saved. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for all men in all times. And now Paul points to Jesus. Paul had been a Pharisee in love with the rules of, of Judaism. But he gave up his religion when he came to know Jesus, when he realized that Jesus gave himself a ransom to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. It's amazing. Paul now preaches the faith that he once persecuted. And then he adds to his resume, a teacher of the Gentiles. In faith and truth. You know, as a Jewish rabbi, Paul hated the Gentiles. But Jesus had won his heart so thoroughly, had won his heart with his love, that now Paul's whole life, his whole ministry, is directed toward the people that he once hated. That's just how God does things. When he turns you around, it, he completely turns you. It's 180 degrees. The people he hated, he now loves and has devoted his life to serve and see saved. Paul has been talking about all men. But did you know that all men come in two varieties? Male and female. And now in the last half of chapter 2, Paul is going to instruct both men and women regarding the specific roles that each should play in the life of the church. Our gender matters to God. He begins in verse 8. I desire therefore... That the men pray everywhere. Now, I'm sure Paul wants women to pray as well. But here he makes special mention of the men. Men are called to lead. And good leaders are praying leaders. Men should pray. If you're going to lead your family, guys. If you want your wife to look to you as the leader of your family, she needs to know that you're on your knees seeking God for His leadership. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, if you stuck a gun in my face, what would be the reaction with my hands? Whoop! I'd throw them straight up. I would surrender. This is the attitude that men should possess. 
Total surrender to the will and to the direction of God. Trust me, guys, your wife will follow you if she knows that you are totally surrendered to the will and direction of God for your life and for your family. She'll surrender to you if you've surrendered to God. If men want to lead, they need to bow before God. Verse 9 is a word to the women now. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now a woman can look cool without making the guys drool. She can. Once I saw this teenage girl, I forget where I was, some conference or something, and I saw this, this teenage girl, and she had the best t-shirt. It read, modest is hottest. I agree. Hey, rather than dress to draw attention to your curves or your cleavage, a Christian woman should dress to highlight her inner beauty. She should dress in such a way that brings attention to the, to the beauty of her spirit. To the love she has of God. To the graciousness and the kindness by which she treats others. You know, one of the early church fathers noticed a prostitute sashaying down the street one day. He looked at her heavy makeup and her gaudy apparel and he was moved to tears. He confessed later, not once had he ever taken the pains to dress his soul in faith and godliness to please the Lord to the degree that that woman had adorned her body to please the world. Where's our focus? Is it on the spirit or is it on the flesh? Here's a theme for the next Project Runway. Mod but modest. Sounds great, doesn't it? Don't hold your breath. In verse 11, Paul says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And from here through chapter 2, Paul is going to deal with the qualifications for church leaders. And they fall into three categories. God cares about character. He cares about giftedness. And He cares about gender. Now when God looks at leadership, He cares about all three. Character, giftedness, and gender. Sadly, today's church stresses giftedness almost exclusively. And yet the only giftedness Paul ever mentions here is apt to teach. We'll find that later. Paul's priority was on character and on gender. If there was some giftedness, then great. But he stressed the character of the person. Here Paul says that a woman should learn in silence with all submission. Now first, let me say about this. I don't believe that this verse is advocating a strict absolute silence for women within the church. That a sister can't speak up or pray in the church. In fact, there are other places in the New Testament where women participate vocally in the worship of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, ladies pray and prophesy in the church. Acts 21, verse 9, Philip is commended for having four virgin daughters who prophesy. In Titus chapter 2 verse 4, Paul tells us that older women should teach the younger women. Paul's intention here is not to forbid Christian women from ever speaking up in the church. Rather, this is the silence that flows out of an attitude of a submissive spirit. 
of a willingness to let the men lead, of a willingness to be supportive to their husbands and to the leaders of the church. Notice Paul adds in verse 12, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now here's what a lot of ladies don't realize. Women have to show restraint if they want their man to lead. Ladies, if you're always asserting yourself, if you're the one that's always doing the talking and always making the plans and always taking over, understand, your man is not going to fight for the leadership. He will let you lead and then go fishing. That's fine with him. You don't realize that men are taught early on never to fight with girls. And so if you want to fight for the leadership, your man will let you have it. If a woman is determined to lead, her man will let her. She has to back off. She has to let him step up if, he, if she wants him to be the leader. Here's the biblical mandate. In the church and in the home, the man is to lead and hold final authority while the woman is to support and to follow her husband. In the eyes of God, men and women are equal in terms of righteousness and worth and gifts, but they have different roles that they play in the church and in the home. Some of the best Bible teachers I know are women. Kay Smith, Pastor Chuck's wife, was probably a better Bible teacher than Pastor Chuck. But if you were a man, you weren't allowed into her Bible class. Men would try to attend. They'd sit on the back row, and Kay would run them out. She understood the biblical roles. This word in verse 11 translated submission. It means to rank under. Everyone who's ever served in the military has met someone of a higher rank who was just plain stupid. Or who had lesser skills and smarts than they did. But because of military order, you did what? You submitted. You, you got in under rank. And this is what God is asking of the females in the Christian fellowship. Men are to lead. Not because they're better or braver or brainier. There's only one reason for male headship. Because God said so. Wives, when you submit to your husband, this makes a strong, radical statement in the eyes of your neighbors. They, they scratch their head. They wonder why. Why would, you met, why would you submit to a turkey like that? But you have an opportunity then to, to tell them how marriage portrays the gospel. That this is a bigger issue than just you and your husband. That, that you are portraying your relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, men are called on in the family and in the church to assume the role of Jesus and lovingly lead. The ladies are commanded to act like the church and willingly follow. And when we live this way in the church and in our homes, we portray the gospel in a very powerful and in a very vivid way. And when we don't order our lives this way, we contradict the gospel. And we can only confuse the world that's looking on. God wants both sexes to complement each other, not compete with each other. And please don't buy into the liberal dribble that you hear today that these roles were only applicable to oriental culture in the first century and they don't really apply to us today. That's just dribble. 
In fact, Paul anticipates that argument in verses 13 and 14. For the biblical roles of male and female transcend culture. And he shows us this because he traces them all the way back to creation. These are creation principles, not cultural principles. He traces them all the way back to the very first couple. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was first formed. And like the oriental title of firstborn, this carried with it special privileges and authority and responsibility. God made Adam the head of the human race. The man received headship. And yet how quickly both the man and the woman violated their roles. How quickly they bucked against God's will. We're told, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. You see, Eve sinned when she usurped her husband's authority and negotiated with the devil. That's when she sinned. Adam, on the other hand, he didn't speak up for her. He sinned because he was weak and failed to lead. And because of their mutual rebellion, sin entered the world. And the whole human race has suffered ever since. Just think about it. We could all be sitting under a shade tree tonight eating fruit. And yet in the wake of Eve's disaster, women were consoled by God with a promise of a Savior. Paul explains in verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, a literal translation puts it, Nevertheless, she will be saved in the childbearing. And here's God's promise. A woman got us into this mess, and thus a woman will help get us out. This is God's attempt to console the woman. Sin came into the world when Satan tempted Eve, but now salvation, the childbearing, the birth of the Messiah. Messiah will also enter the world through a woman, through a virgin named Mary. And it's through the childbearing, the miracle of Jesus' incarnation, that you and I can now be saved through faith. What's expected of us? It's not just a one-time pledge, mind you. But Paul tells us to continue in faith. Continue in faith. And in the fruits of living out that faith, in love and holiness with self-control. 